Well, how is everyone doing? Woo, enjoying a little bit of nice weather. I know we did have some rain, but God, it's just so good. We thank you for the seasons. We thank you for the variety we get. We thank you. We get a good summer. We get a good spring. We get a good fall. We get a good winter. We just thank you, Father, for all your blessings that you pour out on us. We give you praise for it. But Holy Spirit, right now, we ask you to take hold with us. We know that you lead and guide us into all truth. You show us things to come. You bring things to our remembrance. You lead us in paths of peace. And you show us how to glorify the Father. And so, Holy Spirit, Jesus called you a teacher. And so we ask that you teach us as we open your word this morning. Show us the truth. You inspired the word. And so now we ask that it be revealed and that revelation knowledge would flow to us this morning. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of a series now. This is week number four on a series called Think Inside the Box. And when we examine what most of Christianity thinks, not all, but there's a lot of areas where it doesn't actually line up with what the Bible says about us. And so we need to allow our minds to be renewed to what the Word actually says about us and not what someone's opinion about it is. So you'll find when I'm preaching that I use tons and tons and tons and tons of scriptures. I'm not one of those preachers who gets up, gives you the one verse, and then can sit there and talk about that one verse forever. You'll find that I usually have like 40 or 50 different slides of nothing but the word, because I believe that the word should do the talking for us, right? He wrote it for a reason, so that you could know it, you could understand it, you could receive it, and you could walk in it. And so we're doing this series called Think Inside the Box in particular. And I want to go here. We mentioned it last week that Jeremiah, God asked him to prophesy. And he, he begins to prophesy for 11 verses. And then God says, you've said good. You've seen good, my son. And he says this, I am actively watching over my word to fulfill it. Adam, can you turn me down just a little bit? I feel like I'm ringing. <laughs> I am actively watching over my word to fulfill it, which means that this is not a dead book. This is not a book that we read and we go, oh, that was nice. It is alive. It is powerful. That's what Hebrews 4.12 says, that the Word of God is quick and sharp. It's alive. It's powerful. It divides between what our thoughts are and what God's thoughts are. What are just your head and what's actually coming from the Spirit of God. And that's a good place to find yourself in when God points out that your thoughts are wrong because it gives you the opportunity to say, okay, let's trash bag them. The word says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways, which means that when we read the word of God, it should elevate us. It shouldn't bring us down because his thoughts are higher. So I believe we're going to have a little elevation this morning. But in Isaiah 55, 11, it says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. You got to understand that the word of God was spoken to the heart of of these writers so that it could be written down and it says the word came out of God's mouth first and it says it shall not return unto me void or a better way to say it would be it doesn't come back empty-handed it says but it shall accomplish 
what I please. Not what you please. A lot of people use the word to say what they want to say about it. You know, you can make the word say anything if you take it out of its context. Oh, got quiet there. You can make the word say anything you want if you remove it from its context and you don't understand where your dispensation is in it. You are not an Old Testament Christian. And so many people are preaching out of the Old Testament as though it's for us. They were examples of God's goodness and His grace in a time that we no longer live in. Hebrews chapter 11 says that all those ones that we read the stories and we're like, oh, that's awesome, David and Samson. It says they all look forward to the time that we live in. They lived on a promise. You live in a promise. There's a big difference between you and them. You want to see you in the Bible? Read what Jesus said. He was the first example of the new covenant. You want to see where you fit? Read the epistles. Paul wrote them to the church of which you're a part of. You know, there's great stories in the Old Testament. I use a lot of them, but we have to understand it doesn't fit for us 100% because we have to see it through the light of the cross. They were looking forward. We are looking back to what Jesus said. It is finished. So we need to understand what he finished for us. But it says, It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing in which I sent it. Now that word prosper is the Hebrew word tesalak, which means to advance, to prosper, to make progress, or to succeed. So the word's purpose, according to the prophet Isaiah, was that when you receive the word, it causes areas of your lives to advance, to prosper, to make progress, and to succeed. Now, people get all hung up with the word prosper. Prosper is not always talking about money. It's talk, the word prosper means to increase. You can increase in wisdom. You can increase in patience. Hear that, Jordan? You can increase in patience. You can increase in love. You can increase in joy. You can increase in emotional stability. Please, if you're watching me via the internet this morning, I'll speak to them instead of you guys. If you are always out of control with your emotions, it doesn't have to stay that way. You don't need to be ruled by them. You can rule over them. So you can increase. And people like to take the word prosper and they're like, oh, money, 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 money. It's not all about money. It just means any subject increasing. And the word, when applied, will take any subject the word is talking about and cause it to increase in your life. The word received and applied will cause increase in the area in which it was sent to influence. And there's many areas that the Bible talks about that God wants it to influence your life. But you know what? It takes us to stop and say, as we talked about Mary last week, let it be done according to me as your word has said. Rather than saying, oh, that would be nice. Well, that sounds like a good thought. No, Lord, I receive it into my heart. I add faith to it, and I choose to walk it out with you. Amen? So last week we were telling you that there's actually seven kinds of prosperity, and people always get hung up on number seven. They're all about, oh, money, money, money. You're just, you know, all you want is want something from God. No. When we talk about prosperity, we're not talking about getting something from God. We're talking about receiving what he said he's given. 
There's things that he's made promises to you, and the word says all the promises of God are yes and amen. The word amen means so be it. So when he promised, he's faithful to fulfill it. That's what the word said. He is faithful who has promised. And so any area where God has made a promise in his word to you, you have to receive that. And it's not about taking it from God. It's about God has already given you everything that you need. Go read Peter. 1.3 says, As God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not will, not if I beg God enough, if I ask the right way. It says he has. So the, the problem isn't on God's end. We need a little bit more receivers in the body of Christ today. God, I receive what you've said. A little less, well, how does that make sense? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Doesn't make sense to your head? Ask for wisdom. It says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally or in abundance or more than you need. That's an area to prosper in. Wisdom. But there are seven different kinds of prosperity. You can have spiritual prosperity. And I can tell you that you stepped into that on the day you received Jesus. You were made one with Jesus, made in his image and his likeness. You already walk in spiritual prosperity. There's emotional prosperity, mental prosperity, physical prosperity, relational prosperity. You know, some of us need to claim that. We've broken so many relationships and burned so many bridges. We need to start speaking prosperity in our relationships. God... When I meet people, I make connections that I can influence, I can lift up people, I can build up people. I'm not a relationship destroyer, I'm a relationship builder. Hallelujah. There's accomplishment prosperity, and then there's financial prosperity. And the one that most people fight is financial prosperity because they think, oh, you're just greedy. You just want a little bit more money. I had been telling you, and I'm going to tell you again, if you live in this country, you're probably already in the top 1%. If you make more than $34,000, you're in the top 1% of the world. You are already rich. You are already blessed. We don't need to try and get blessed. We're blessed by default. You have to understand, even if you get a check from the government every week, you are making more than most of the people in the world. Do you know that the average person on this planet makes $2.50 a day? That works out to be like $917 a year. And most people get more than that just from the government a month. So stop looking at yourself as the broke, busted, and disgusted and start realizing that you are already blessed where you stand right now. Now the message that we're preaching is not just for Canada, the United States, or the United Kingdom, or any of that. It works anywhere in the world. And I remember Jerry Savelle, when he was launching out in the 70s into Africa, people said, you can't talk talk about God's blessings and God's prosperity in Africa. It just doesn't work for them. And he says, if it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for anyone. It's the word of God wherever you are in the world and so he started going into these villages and they were being transformed he's like people would come and they'd give me their chicken because they had nothing else to give and at first he was like what am I going to do with the chicken and God says you honor their gift and so he'd take them and he'd sell them and he'd give them to those who who were in need in the area that he was working in and one guy brought his bicycle 
And he's like, what am I going to do with a bicycle? And then he realized, God, this is his seat of transportation. And the next time he got there, yeah, the guy was driving a car. He was increasing. He was sowing seed and he was receiving back. And he began to see those nations changed and transformed. And they look nothing like those villages that he's been supporting for the last few, uh, 40 years, I think it is now, look nothing like they did when he got there. Because the word works no matter your location. Last week we were reading, you're blessed in the city and you're blessed in the country. You're blessed at whatever you put your hand to do. But people get hung up on number seven about money. The Proverbs, by the richest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon says, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So if you don't like it, go ahead and tell Solomon he was wrong. He lived it out. He walked it out. John said this. He said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in... All things, not just money. He said in all things, in all the seven areas of prosperity that the Bible talks about. And be in health as your soul prospers. Just as your soul prospers. You know that you will never prosper beyond what you will accept? That's right. If you set up restrictions in your mind, oh, that's not for me. Oh, that's just not true. That just can't happen for me. That's good for you, Pastor Jordan. You live your truth. No, there's no, there's no my truth and your truth. There's only the truth. Amen. Truth is not subjective. Mm-hmm. It is absolute. But you will never prosper beyond the area that you're willing to accept. God has set some pretty high standards for his children in the Bible. So we need to raise our thinking and think within the box. But God is interested in transforming every area of our lives, spirit, soul, and body. Now, last week we were going through Deuteronomy. In chapter 30, it tells us, now listen. I love that he said, he's like, he didn't want people to miss the point he was about to say. So he said, now listen. Today I'm giving you, say me, me, the choice between life and death, blessing or prosperity and disaster. The New King James says blessing. But I'm giving you the choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. Oh, but whatever God wants to happen is just automatically going to happen. Then he's going to have to go and take those verses out. Because he said it again in verse 19. I set before you this day life and death, death and cursing. And then he says, choose life. He answered the question. He gives you the choice and then he tells you which way to lean. And so if God didn't want us making choices that could influence where we end up, he has to apologize and take these out of the Bible. But you know, it says that God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should repent or change his mind, is another translation. God said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and so we need to do what he said he did and apply it to our lives. And he said this in the verse before. He says, the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips and it's in your heart so that you can obey it. God's blessings need to be put in your heart and put on your mouth. Meaning I expand in the areas God has said I can expand in. I walk in health because he said that by his stripes I was healed. Not will be, 
The word says was. It says that my God supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So I put that on my mouth, I put that in my confession, and I believe that in my heart. But I've found this, the things that you don't believe never show up in your life. But the things that you believe and begin to speak, you begin to see them in your life. You know, it's funny that now I'm getting a little older, I can see the way that people in my life have spoken and how it has affected their destiny over the last 34 years that I've known them. Specifically with family members. People talk certain ways and you begin to see it influence them and influence even their looks. You know, we used to always joke about, about mom's family that you could tell the believers and the unbelievers because one looked really old and one looked really young. And I believe Pastor Wendy's just going to stay looking young for the rest of her life. We'll speak blessing over her. But negative beliefs and negative confessions have influence on you. And they take you directions that you don't want to go. So I'd rather set my direction and set it in the direction God said to aim it towards. James told us in 3.10, he says that in blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth, and surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Or the New King James says, this should not be. Meaning you have the ability to curse your life or to bless your life. And he put the choice in your hand. Okay. And it says in 2 Corinthians 4.13, and since we have the same spirit of faith, the same spirit of faith that's who? Jesus is the context of the verse. According to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Pastor Robin picked that up last week during the offering before he even knew what I was preaching on. But we follow the same example. You know, if you want to see an example of Jesus letting his faith go before him in his words and his beliefs, look at the story of Lazarus. They came to him and said, Lazarus is sick. And everybody's like, oh, no, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus said to them, this sickness is not unto death. And then he took like five days to get there. It wasn't like it was a short journey for him to walk to where Lazarus is sick. He took his time. And when he got there... He's dead. And everybody's weeping and wailing and crying and squalling and bawling. And Martha comes and says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, I told you it was not unto death. But the guy's dead in the grave. Then Mary comes and says, but Jesus, if you were here, he would have lived. And Jesus weeped because of their unbelief. A lot of people preach that he wept because he was sad about Lazarus. He was sad about his un their unbelief. His word had said, this is not unto death. And so he walked to the grave and he said, open the stone. And they all said, he stinks, Jesus. He's been in there four days. And Jesus is like, I said, it's not unto death. So they rolled the stone away and he says, Lazarus, come here. And Lazarus comes hopping out. And then they had to loose him from the grave clothes because he was wrapped up. <laughs> Jesus' words would go before him. They're getting in the ship and he says, we're going to the other side. And a storm comes up. And the disciples are screaming, we're going to die. And Jesus is asleep. 
And they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're dying? And he said, oh, you of little faith. Why? Because what were his words when he got in the boat? We're going to the other side. And he just said, peace. You got to be careful that you don't start lining your words up with the negative situations you're seeing. If the word said it, the word has to be true. And the word will trump the situation. It doesn't have to line up with your thoughts. God has a million different ways of doing things, a billion different ways, a trillion different ways, an infinitesimal way, many ways to do it. Okay, okay, let's move on. <laughs> you got to be careful when I get in these cheeky moods. You never know what I'm going to say. It's all good. I'm, th- I'm glad that regardless of what I say, Rob's still going to have a good time and he's still going to enjoy it. Why don't you all get on the Rob bus and we'll have a great time together. <clears throat> but Pastor Jordan, we should focus on the things that Jesus actually talked about. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just in that great mood this morning. Really, I believe. I, I fully 100 agree with you. We should talk about the things that Jesus talked about. You realize that 16 of the 38 prob- pro- parables, that's almost half, were about money and possessions? Nearly 50%. You realize that one in 10 verses in the Gospels talks about money, and when you open it up to the whole New Testament, it shrinks down to one in seven verses is about money? You realize that in the Bible as a whole, there are 500 verses on prayer. There are less than 500 on faith, but more than 2,000 on money. Why? Because I'm pretty sure God knew we would screw it up. Even in the beginning, at the garden, let's think about this. Adam and Eve get put in the garden. They have no needs. All the trees are there to feed them. They can, God said, I've given you every seed. Do what you want to do with it. And then you know what he did? We'll look this up probably next week. I'll put this verse in to show you where it is. He said, if you follow this river, that's where the good gold is. What do they need gold for? They've got no need, no desires. God had foresight. He knew the economic systems that were going to be put into place. And he told Adam, he said, the good gold. Not even the okay gold. It was the good gold. And then he said, and you follow this river, and that's where the good rubies and gemstones are. They didn't need it. But God already had the foresight and the provision to tell them where to find that. Go read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You'll find it. And I'll point it out next week if you don't. But he, Timothy, or Paul gave this command to Timothy, and P- Timothy was a young pastor that he was mentoring went on to pastor the largest church in the New Testament at the time. But he gave this commandment to Timothy. He said, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or high-minded or stuck up, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Let's read this all, this last section together. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. But it's not about the things. Because he said, don't trust in your riches. What does it mean to trust in uncertain riches? You have to understand that the economic system that we live in right now has not been the one we've lived with for the last 6,000 years. They come, they go all the time. And the system that we live in right now is actually a relatively short span of time. Meaning everything could change tomorrow and your money could be worthless. Don't believe me? Ask the Germans pre-World War II. 
when they had to take wheelbarrow loads of money to the market to buy bread because their money was worthless when their economy crashed. We don't need to trust in money. Your worth does not come by the millions in the bank or the dollars in the bank. That is not your worth. Your worth comes from the living God who gives you all things richly. You can have nothing today, but if you have need, God will supply it. Look at Elijah. He called him to the wilderness, away from all provision, away from all supply, in the middle of a famine, and he had the birds feed him. If you need food, God will feed you. You know, I always love talking to my friend Spiros because he's got all these stories of God's amazing provision of how he's come across. And he used to feed like 20, 30 homeless youth like every day, and he had no money. And he'd go in and they'd be like, we need some pasta, and there'd be no pasta in the cupboard. And then he'd come back later in the day and he'd open up the door and he doesn't know where the pasta came from but we now have pasta to cook for all these homeless youth he'd start cooking a bucket of soup knowing that it was not going to supply all of the people that were coming to eat it and he would just start scooping and they'd all eat and they'd all eat all, more than they needed and there'd still be food in the bucket now, I know Spiros personally, and I know that he would never lie about things like that. He honors God way too much. So if you're saying, oh, that's just a made-up story, Pastor Jordan, no. I won't let you tread on his victories and his blessings. But God will supply whatever you need, whenever you need it, because he's a good father. Yes. We lock up earthly fathers who neglect their children, but yet we allow the heavenly father to be slandered that way. Sorry, little stern words there, but it's true. So he said, command the rich. He didn't say, don't let yourself be rich. He said, command the rich. Give them instructions. And he has all kinds of instructions. He has no problem with you being rich. He has no problem with you being poor. He has a problem with him not being your source. Yes. Your blessing does not come from what you have, but rather who you have. So you need to know your source. Your job is not your source. It may be providing some of your needs right now, but God can give you sources that have nothing to do with your job. God can bring increase to that job if he wants to. You don't have to be the, the commander of how things happen in your life. You need to be the believer and the receiver. Let God expand your business. Let him give you new clients. Let him give you new opportunities or just let him bless you any way he wants to. You need to understand that God is your source and not this world. Let God be God and let you be not. It says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely also give us all things? If he didn't hold back Jesus... Paul said, if he didn't hold him back, Jesus, this is not Jordan, this is Paul, by the unction of the Holy Spirit, saying, if he didn't hold back Jesus, how shall he not also freely give us all things? And as I already quoted this morning, Matthew 7, 11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Got to change your perspective about God. It's not a how much more. A lot of Christianity is, well, he just might. Well, he could if he really wanted to, but we really don't know what he's going to do. It's up to him. No. He said, how much more? Mm -hmm. 
How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? You know, James also said you have not because you ask not. And he says you ask and you don't receive because you're trying to lavish it upon your lusts. That means you're following after the money rather than following after God, who is the source. Oh, come on. I know some of you really enjoy it. Some of you are really hating this. That's okay. We always get the impasse where it's like, I have to take my thoughts or I have to take God's thoughts. Only one can be true. You can't serve God and mammon, is what the Bible says, which means that's the world system. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and yourself. You serve one or the other and let God be the provider. So, <laughs> whew, I'm enjoying this. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God treated his spiritual family in Abraham and how the blessing was passed on to Isaac. But this morning, in the time that we have remaining, we need to look at the ultimate example, and that is Jesus. How did Heavenly Father interact with Jesus? Because I have to ask you this question before we go any further. Does God love Jesus more than you? Does God give Jesus more opportunities than you? John chapter 17 says, Jesus' final prayer, God, make us one. Make them one with us. Love them with the same love you love me. So would God give Jesus opportunities he wouldn't give you? Does God play favorites between his children? Romans tells us that God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of persons, meaning his love is his love is his love for his kids. He loves John the same way he loves Rob, the same way he loves Pauline. He loves us all with the same love, and it's the same love that Jesus was loved with. He doesn't have a hierarchy of kids in his kingdom. So we have to ask this question, was Jesus poor? Because the predominant perspective of, the, of Christianity is that Jesus was poor. So I've decided in the last few weeks that I was going to go through and I was going to do all kinds of research on the, from the perspective trying to prove that Jesus was poor. Because I believe you should read the other side of things. Because it will tell you one thing, you might be wrong. And it will tell you another thing, you might be right. Now Robin always laughs when she looks at my Facebook feed. She's like, why do you follow that crazy person? I like to hear what the crazy people are saying. <laughs> So I took the last few weeks and I studied from the perspective that Jesus was poor. And here's from all the different articles and books that I read about it. Here are the three arguments that they give that Jesus was poor. You ready for it? Number one, he cared for and spent time with the poor. How is that an indication that Jesus was poor because he spent time with poor people? If you're a nurse and you spend time with sick people, does that make you a sick person? No, it makes you a nurse or a doctor. Number two thing. This one I'd never heard before and really surprised me, but I kept coming across it in all my research, that his parents gave the poor sacrifice at his circumcision, so therefore his family must be poor. We'll deal with that in a second. And the third one that they kept giving was Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, which is the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a house, so he, should, he must have been poor. 
Okay, so now in the time remaining, we're going to go and we're going to first address those, and then we're going to go beyond that, because those were the predominant three. I'm going to give you more than three on the opposite side. So number one, he cared for and spent time with the poor. Well, what about Zacchaeus? He was a rich tax collector. Spent a lot of time with him. What about Nicodemus? He was a rich temple official. He spent a lot of time with him. What about Joseph of Arimathea? The dude brought enough spices and oils to bury a king to his death. He wasn't a poor guy. He gave a brand new tomb that no one had ever been buried in before to bury Jesus in. Mary Magdalene is listed as a rich lady who provided for the needs of all Jesus' followers. So if Jesus only spent time with poor people, then they have to take their names out of the Bible. Because what about the rich young ruler? How did he even have an opportunity to ask Jesus what he should do if Jesus didn't spend time with rich people? How did Jesus go all to the parties? Poor people don't have, can't throw parties and feasts. They don't, they're thinking about how do I feed myself today, not how I feed all of these people. Right. right? So if Jesus spent time with the poor and therefore he must have been poor, that's not a valid reason because he also spent time with the rich and you spend time with the people you're trying to help. And you have to understand that the poor of his time, they were being subjugated by the religion of the Pharisees. They were being put down while the Pharisees were being lifted up more and more. You have to understand that in the time that after the Maccabean revolt, the high priestship was not following the lineage of the Levites and the, 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 the family of Aaron any longer. It was being auctioned off to the highest bidder every year. They were following after money. Jesus came to lift up those who were oppressed, those who were broken. That's why he spent time with them. When they asked, Jesus, why are you with all these people instead of the religious? He said, the sick need a doctor, not the well. That's why Jesus was with the poor all the time. Okay, number two, he gave the poor sacrifice at his circumcision. So I had to do some research on this because I had never heard that one before. It really threw me for a loop. So let's look at his circumcision. In Luke chapter 2, verse 21, it says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And as it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they had an option for their sacrifice. They could give turtle doves or they could give young pigeons. And so the, the argument that I kept coming across was they gave the pigeons, therefore they must have been poor. Anywhere in there does it tell you what they gave? It just told you the options they had. The rich give turtle doves, the poor give pigeons. But it doesn't tell us even which one they did. So how did they know they gave the poor sacrifice? I read through all four of the Gospels and I couldn't find it. And then I heard one guy say, well, they should have given a lamb. The rich give the lamb. I could not find that in the law anywhere. I couldn't even find that in the extra law. 
documents saying that they had to give a lamb. It's only ever the two options, and it doesn't even tell us which one they gave. And even if they gave the pigeons, that's an indication of the family he grew up in, not the family he lived as. Maybe that's where they started. You have to understand, when this time happened, they were probably still in Bethlehem, not where they lived. They had traveled there for the census. She had the baby in Bethlehem. They were probably still in Bethlehem. Even if it was a lamb, they didn't have a lamb with them. It's not like they took their whole herd. They took themselves to register, and then they were going home. So we don't know what they gave, but it would be an indication of Joseph. Not an indication of Jesus 33 years later. You don't know all that happened in that 33 years in between. Nor does it tell us which one they did. Okay, let's go to the third one. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. It says, Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Oh, Jesus, he was a poor homeless bum. He had nowhere to sleep. He slept out under the stars. We just, he didn't know where he was going to be from night to night. Was this true? You have to understand, Jesus, by the time Matthew 8 rolls around, has gone into a traveling ministry. He's traveling from town to town. Of course he doesn't know where he's going to lay his head. He doesn't know what inn is available, or if there is one available. But this is not an indication of whether or not Jesus actually had a home. But the the scripture actually has some things to say about that. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, before he goes out on his ministry, it says, And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. Well, Pastor Jordan, this is referring to he was in his hometown. Really? Well, the next verse says, And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, not even near the door. So it says he's at home and then immediately references a structure that he is in, which tells me it's his house. Jesus was at home. Don't believe me? Let's continue on. It says, And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they couldn't bring uh, him to Jesus because of the crowd. Also, I should point out that it said there was many people in his house not just a few, and he traveled with 12 disciples. So 12 people in a house is already quite a bit, but there was many crammed into there, so it wasn't necessarily a small structure. It says they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head, and they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus, and no one said, Stop tearing my roof off! Jesus, this is the last time that I let you hold a meeting in my house. They're tearing off my dang roof. Look, now they're laying it, letting a guy down in here. He better not die in here, Jesus. <laughs> no one complains, right? Because Jesus is at home, and he's a carpenter. He knows how to fix his roof. But Jesus was from Nazareth, though, so this couldn't be his house, right? Really? Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, he says he first went to Nazareth, and then he left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali. So he moved. Waterfront property, exactly. He moved to Capernaum. 
Now, last time I checked, poor people, beggars, don't move. Yes. <laughs> Let's get beyond that, though, Jess. They don't have anything to move. That's right. And if you were a beggar in the time of Jesus, you had to register in your town, and they gave you beggar's clothes so that everyone would know you were a registered beggar, and they could give money to you without getting ripped off. So no, you're not just pretending to be a beggar. You're a legitimate beggar. So if you're a beggar, one, you don't move your town. Because that's not the town you're from, and you can't become a legitimate beggar in a town you're not from. And two, if you look throughout history, poor people live, or born, live, and die, usually in the same town that they were born in. So he moved. He's not just talking about he relocated to a better begging situation. He moved. But Jesus was just a poor carpenter, right, Pastor Jordan? Oh, I'm so glad you're asking these questions. These are great, great questions. <laughs> was Jesus a poor carpenter? In Mark chapter 6, in Capernaum, they say, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So, and so they were offended at him. They were offended that he was doing miracles, that he was teaching the word, because they said, Is he not just the carpenter? Well, when we hear the word carpenter, we kind of put it in the category of he's just the laborer. He's the guy cleaning up the work site. He's the guy getting sent up on the roof to hammer down the shingles. You know, we, we think of it in a lowly term, but you have to understand the word that they used there was tecton, was not a general laborer. The word tecton, according to the theologian William Barclay, meaning not a mere worker in wood. He's not just somebody who bangs two things together. It means craftsman. It's more than merely a joiner. And you have to look at how it's used in other Greek writings because the Bible is not the only book written in Greek in the New Testament. So if you look at other Greek writings, you can see how the words were used. And so in Homer, who wrote the Iliad and wrote the Odyssey, who are just like, they're amazing books that have stood the test of time and people still read them today, that Homer used tecton, is said to build ships, houses, and temples. It's more likely that Jesus was a master craftsman who would be more like an architect and he'd be the guy running the site. He was not the mere laborer on site. You know, if you think about even the region he was in, one of the things I saw that people saying that he was poor, well, you know, it's hard to get a living in Nazareth with only a hundred people because it was a small village. And they go, oh, well, you, there's not a lot to build in a village of 100. Context is key. Isn't that what I said? Do you know where Nazareth was? It was four miles from Sephoris. Now, what was Sephoris? Sephoris was a thriving metropolis city being built in Jesus' lifetime by Herod's eldest son. He came of age and said, you know what, Dad? It's great living with you in here in the kingdom, but I want to build my own city. And so he moved to Sephoris, and he built a giant synagogue, probably built by Jesus, and a whole bunch of palaces, and it was a thriving metropolis, and Nazareth was the suburb of Sephoris. 
Context is key. You need to know where these places are in order to make the judgment. Well, it's 100 people. You can't make a living with 100 people. Um, Sephorus was thriving and thriving, probably while Jesus was growing up, following his father. That's why they were stayed in Nazareth, was so that they could be part of the building teams, building this new city. But as towards Jesus' time of ministry, the, the industry started to decline in Sephorus as Herod and his sons were falling out of favor with the people because they were spending all their money. And so building started to slow down in Sephorus. And what does the Bible say? Jesus moved to Capernaum. Why? Because Capernaum began to be built and expanded during Jesus' later lifetime. Why did he move to Capernaum originally? Jobs. Work, new temples, new palaces being built, new waterfront properties. Why? You move where the work is. So Jesus was not just some poor bum who slapped together a few chairs for whoever could pay him a few pennies. Even from the beginning, God was providing for his child. What happened? The wise men show up on his door. Now, we always say that there was three wise men, but the Bible doesn't tell us how many. It just tells us that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it says, they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and then they opened their treasure chests. Not chest. Chests. you got to think, they've been traveling for a long time to worship a king that the heavens were already celebrating. When you come to worship a king, they didn't know he was born in a major. They were thinking he was going to be in the palace. You come before a king, you give a good gift. Now, it wasn't just to make Jesus rich. You know what that money, that gold, and that frankincense and myrrh went towards? To pay for Jesus having to flee the country with his family because Herod was trying to find him and kill him. So his family moved to Egypt and lived off that supply. You know, what was Egypt? Egypt was one of the main learning centers of the known world at that time. Their architecture is still standing today after several thousand years. So when you want to think about Jesus being a craftsman, look at the environment he grew up in. If you want to learn a good trade of how to build a good house, Egypt was the place to go. And that's where Jesus spent his formative years until the Holy Spirit said, it's, it's okay, you can go back now. And they moved to Nazareth so that they could build Sephorus and they moved to Capernaum. Context is key in understanding what was going on at that point in history. But again, remember, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? If He provided for Jesus so that He could be secure in having to even flee to Egypt, how much more you? In Mark chapter 6, we're going to start wrapping up now, but it says, when, when the day was now far spent, His disciples came to Him and said, This is a deserted place. The hour is late. Send the people away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy for themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, this is the story of the 5,000, feeding the 5,000, just in case you didn't know. He says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? 200 denarii worth is two-thirds of a year's salary. Jesus said, feed them, and they said, oh, Jesus, should we just take 200 denarii worth or two-thirds of the year's salary for one person and just give it to them? Which means that Jesus wasn't like, oh, my goodness, we can't spend that much money. How dare you suggest that? 
But Jesus had something else in mind. He said, how many loaves do you have? And oftentimes we're looking at what we don't have and rather than what we do have. Jesus doesn't ask you to do something with what you don't have. He always asks you to do something with what you do have. And so they went and saw and they said, we have five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus said, that's all we need. And he fed 5,000 men and probably about 10,000 women and children. It's not about what you don't have. God is your source. And he can still do miracles today with what you do have. We don't have to lust after being rich. You already rich because you have God. You're a favored child of the king. Jesus wasn't surprised, though, when they said we could spend two-thirds of a year's salary and feed all these people. He also wasn't surprised in John chapter 12, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, <laughs> I love that, he had been dead, which meaning he's not dead now, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who sat with them at the table. I love that. He was dead, and now he's eaten at the table with them. <laughs> then Mary took a pound of costly oil of spikenard and anointed Jesus' feet, and, he wiped his, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii was a year's salary. Why did Judas say that? We don't have to ask that question. The Bible tells us. This he said not because he cared for the poor, <laughs> but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. If you are poor... Why do you need a treasurer? Second question. If you are poor and only got two pennies to rub together, you would notice if your treasurer was a thief and stealing from the money box. Right? Jesus obviously was of enough means that he had his own treasurer who held on to the money, who could steal without knowing it was being taken. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was like the billionaire of his day. I'm just saying Jesus didn't hurt. His God, his daddy provided for him. Continuing on with Judas, on the night Jesus was a portrayed, it said Judas had eaten the bread and Satan entered into him. And then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. And none of the others knew at the table knew what Jesus meant. But since Jesus was, or Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for food or to give some money to the poor. So it was a regular occurrence that Jesus would send Judas out to feed the poor. Right. And the disciples thought nothing of Judas getting up from the table, taking the money box, and leaving with it. So Jesus obviously had a habit of providing for others. You can't provide for others what you don't have for yourself. Let's look to his crucifixion. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them, and they also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from the top 
to the bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. And this fulfilled the scripture. They divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. And so they did it. When they were separating up his clothes, they took his tunic, and then they found his, his linen garment. And they said, this thing is too nice to rip apart into four pieces for the four of us. When was the last time a smelly old beggar off the road walked by and you said, oh, I really want his coat? <laughs> we shouldn't rip it up. No, it usually already has holes in it. It's already pretty worn out. So even in what Jesus wore around was nice enough that four greedy soldiers were like, hey, we are not ripping this thing apart. You know, we have to change our perspectives and let the Bible actually speak for us. Religion has told us a lot of things. The Bible tells us other things. If we'll just read it in its context and actually put it in its historical perspective. God has no problem with you having things. You know, I always find the people that complain about, you know, God doesn't want you to be prosperous, He doesn't want to bless you, are usually a pretty good means. I've, I've yet to find a poor person hear the message that God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Go, oh, no, no, I just, I just don't think Jesus wants us to have anything. No, it's usually people who already have. They're usually the ones that want you to not have. You need to follow God's word over theirs. That's right. End with this verse, which we're going to explore a lot more next week. In 2 Corinthians 8 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. This isn't necessarily talking about money. This is Jesus stood in a place of great exchange with you. He took all he was and gave it to you and took all you were and killed it in the grave. And then he raised up and was united together with you. And so John tells us this, just as Jesus is, so are we in this world. What is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. I gotta ask you a question. Is there any lack in heaven with Jesus? Is there any sickness in heaven with Jesus? Is there any emotional instability in heaven with Jesus? Is there any physical lack? John said, just as he is, so are you. So we change our thoughts, we focus our beliefs, and we begin to speak in that way. That's right, John, you're right. You are exactly right, John. Just as Jesus is, so am I right now. Yes, Paul, you are exactly right. My God supplies all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Yes, Peter, you are right. By his stripes I was healed. Yes, Jesus, you are right. How much more will my heavenly Father not give good gifts unto those who ask? What do you want to align yourself with? I only have one piece of advice. Think inside the box of the Word. So Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the inspiration of your word. But Father, we also thank you that you are a good, good Father. So good to us. So loved by you. You love us with an everlasting love. Just as you love Jesus. And so above all, we put our trust in the living God.
<laughs> we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are blessed. Have a wonderful week. Let's have some coffee and talk and have some good conversations together.